Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So this morning we are back in the Gospel of Luke for one more Sunday before we start the Advent season. And we find ourselves, Jesus, coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, that glorious scene, Peter, James, and John. See Jesus, he lights up brighter than brighter than light itself. The white, the light comes, emanates from Jesus. He's seen there with Moses and Elijah just this wonderful height of a story, of an account, and they come down off of this mountain and they encounter this dark scene. One of the reasons why I like to preach through books of the Bible is that this is not necessarily a text that a preacher is flipping through their Bible uh, throughout the week and thinks, oh, let's take this text, I'll pick this one up. It forces us to look at things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise emphasize or even look at. And our text with this, in the Gospel of Luke, is a very interesting text this morning. Um, this, it's, and it's interesting because of the way that Luke relays the information to us. This account is also found in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, but Luke really condenses what he has to say. Um, Luke's is a very peculiar telling of this event. You can find the other parallels if you want to look them up in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and then in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Those are two other tellings of of this story. And the Matthew account is interesting if you look it up and read it later this afternoon. There's content that's that's had between Jesus and his disciples. Um, Matthew includes as the conversation as they're coming down about the spirit of Elijah being John the Baptist, but also this question about why couldn't we cast the demon out? Maybe you remember this story from the other Gospels. There's this question, why could we not cast this demon out? And the conversation is had that basically this, this doesn't come about but through prayer. And then some, some uh, texts have and fasting. But that this There's this conversation between the disciples and Jesus about why they had no success casting this demon out of this child. And so that's the Matthew account. The Markan account in in Mark chapter 9 
has this detail of the conversation between the father and Jesus. Do you remember this, this telling of the story that uh, the man is upset about his son and Jesus has this conversation, well, if you believe, whatever, and the man says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You've maybe heard that's kind of a, a phrase we hear in church speak of, of help, I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, and taking that up as a prayer maybe upon yourself. And I, those, are, those are all very interesting things in, in the narrative. I, they're, they're very interesting. And, and if you hear a pastor preach on these, this event, likely they'll come from Matthew or they'll come from Mark because of the extra detail that's in there. But Luke doesn't contain any of those dialogues. It's interesting. Puff picked up on it. We, uh, this morning in Sunday school, we, were going, we got out our Jesus film app and we watched this narrative in the Jesus film app and then we read it and he was saying, well, there's a lot of dialogue that's missing. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Matthew and Mark have a lot of dialogue that Luke doesn't contain. Why is that? Why? I mean, so Luke, you could say, well, Luke knows you're going to read Matthew and Mark, so he's just going to leave it out. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe that, but I don't think Luke isn't, he's writing 24 chapters. It isn't like he's worried about going on too long. He, he includes a lot of detail that Matthew and Mark have, but he's, his point must be something different. It's like, um, remember the feeding of the 5,000? When we, we looked at that narrative in Luke and the other gospels record the child bringing his two fish and five loaves, right? And so lots of times the sermon will become about you bring to Jesus your fish and loaves and then he multiplies it for the many. And that's maybe fine, but Luke doesn't include that. And so you have to do some hard work of thinking why, if the main point is the, is the narrative from Matthew that this comes out by prayer and fasting or if the, from Mark that is this prayer of God, I believe, but I have these doubts, Lord, help me. If that's the main point, well, then Luke is really including this for no reason. I mean, he's missed the point. Or else, Luke's point is, is something else. Luke is, is emphasizing something different. And noting that different difference forces us to dig deeper into what Luke has included under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to work hard at understanding what he is emphasizing. So, the way that I was trying to think of this is by asking this question, why, what is Luke... Why do we run to Matthew and Mark when it comes to this story? Why do we run to those two uh, scenarios of prayer and fasting or I believe, Lord, help my unbelief? Why do we run to those other accounts? What is so appealing about the accounts in Matthew and Mark that makes Luke not so appealing? Why do these other tellings of this event get preached more than the one of Luke? Why, if a preacher is going to preach on this account, does he do preach on the ones from Matthew or Mark? And it's interesting, I was reading through the commentaries, and commentaries, which are supposed to be this scholastic kind of level of depth into the text, lots of them, in talking about the Luke narrative, will go into the Matthew and Mark ones to make the point to kind of flesh out the narrative of Luke by bringing in content from Matthew and Mark. And it's like, wait a second, Luke has got a letter here communicating to us one message. What is he trying to say? Why would he not have those things in there? And could it be... Could it be that those narratives, they focus in on things like the need for faith, the, the need for prayer, fasting, the confession of doubts in the midst of having faith. They, in the midst of having faith, I have faith, but God, I, I, I still have my doubts. Lord, help my unbelief. 
They communicate the need for increasing of our faith, to put in the work of prayer, to confess our doubts while clinging to our beliefs. All of those narratives, they call us to do something. Get to work. I mean, and they're not terrible uh, admonitions out of them, but you can see why they're appealing to us because we get to leave with our list of things that we are to be about, how we can help ourselves by saying these prayers, doing these things, having these fastings. Why is that so attractive to us? Well, we get to see ourselves as those who are contributing. We get to see ourselves as those, this is what we are doing to help ourselves. And boy, that is appealing to our American mindset. This is, God has done this much, and now this is what I do to help myself along. We find that narrative very appealing. We get to see ourselves as those who are contributing. We are those who are doing something about our condition. We are those who, we don't have it all together, of course not. We would never say that we've got it all figured out. But we are those who are improving. And with a little bit of help and a little bit of work and a few pointers, we can really nail this thing. And I'd argue that we like those accounts because they allow us to have some sense of control over our lives. They let us sit in some degree in the driver's seat. We see ourselves as either disciples who are a little off but trying hard. You know, they tried to throw this demon out. They couldn't get it done. We see ourselves as as the disciples you know, we're following Jesus, but just need a little tweak. Or we see ourselves as the Father. You know, we're, we've, we've got this problem. We can't figure it out. And so we bring the problem to God and then and He to Jesus. And Jesus makes it all better. Or, or worst of all, you might see yourself as Jesus who comes down and, boy, the world's just that. No one can get anything right. You might know people like this. <laughs> they, they familiarize themselves with Jesus. They're this one who's got it all figured out and just everyone else around them has got it wrong. That's the worst one to compare yourself to. Don't, don't go there. But do we ever consider, do we ever consider our relationship to the ones that Jesus called the crooked and twisted generation? Do we ever consider our relation to our similarities with this broken and shattered son? That's not so appealing, is it? <laughs> more appealing to be the disciples who are a little messed up or be the father who's got this problem he's bringing to Jesus but to think of ourselves as the crooked twisted shattered son who needs help from outside of himself (laughs) that we do not find as appealing we never consider that we are the helpless case of the shattered son in desperate need of outside help this is who Luke is focusing on This child, this son, who has been wrecked. Jesus comes down off this Mount of Transfiguration. Get back in the text here. And he discovers this scene of incredible darkness. And the contrast would be startling. This bright light to the depths of darkness. And look how this child is overcome. Verse 39 says, Behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. We watched the video I I just told you this morning in Sunday school. You should get the Jesus Film app out and just have it put a little bit of a visual on what this would mean. This child thrown down, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, shattered, unable to get out from the control of this force 
We hear this cry of this father, help my only son. Luke emphasizes, might be an indicator, but Luke in several places emphasizes this only son, the only daughter. This is an only son of this father. And the word shatters here. Look at the end of verse 39. If you got the ESV, at the, at, he foams at the mouth and shatters him. That Greek word is interesting. We'll come back to it. But notice this shattering. This child, this son is shattered. It means to crush, to bruise. If you were to ask Puff what that word is in his Thai Bible, he would say, like he said to me this morning, it's like, it's like when you, somebody hits you and then what's left. What's that, everybody? It's bruised. It's, a, it's this child is shattered. He is bruised. He is wrecked. He has been harmed. He's been broken into pieces. This child is clearly in a world of trouble. And some will make a lot out of his symptoms. They'll talk about, oh, this is epilepsy. And, and very well, it might be that he's got some neurological disorder that's causing these sorts of seizures. But there also is definitely a supernatural something or other going on here. We know clearly on down in verse 42, while Jesus was coming, or while they're bringing the son here, the demon throws him to the ground and convulses him, but Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. So there's a lot going on in this kid. He is in a world of hurt. Now, I just got done asking if we ever considered ourselves to be the shattered child in this account. And then I want to talk about how bad <laughs> this kid has it. What's Darren saying? Are we this, are we this demon-possessed, you know, whatever? Well, obviously, I'm not going to the literal, you are the child. But are we in as desperate of condition as this son was for something outside of himself to rescue him out of his shattered bondage, out of his oppression, out of his dire need? Are we that desperate? We are are all desperate for a help outside of ourselves, just like this son is. And thankfully, that is exactly the help Jesus delivers. Let me ask you a question. What is the greatest hurdle to faith? When, when you look around at the, the community, those you know who aren't interested in Jesus or peripherally kind of interested but don't want to actually, you know, go all the way there with it or whatever, what is the biggest, what are the greatest hurdles to belief in Jesus? Some would say the greatest hurdles is the pleasures of sin. The world is just so alluring and there's just so much, there's, there's, sin is, has so many baubles and it's so attractive that the greatest hurdle to, to faith in Christ is that sin seems to be and have so much pleasure accounted with it or with it that, that that's why the world is struggling. That's this great hurdle against faith in Christ, the pleasures of sin. Or maybe we'd say the busyness of life is, and I that is, the pleasures of sin are a hurdle. They would say the busyness, the busyness of life. People show up or, and, and if they have anything else to do on a Sunday morning or if they have a Bible reading plan or they want to spend time in prayer and five minutes a day, but if there's a TV show on, we got a half hour for it. We don't have five minutes to actually seek God. The busyness of life. Is that the hurdle to faith? And those maybe are, but what is maybe the greatest hurdle Against faith. And I would argue that one of the greatest hurdles against belief in Jesus in our culture today is thinking we've already got him. One of the greatest hurdles to faith in Christ is this widespread notion I'm pretty much already okay. 
I mean, why would I, why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to try to get reconciled to God? Why do I need to seek God? Why do I need to even pursue Him at all? Why should I turn my face toward Jesus? I'm actually got everything pretty nailed down. I'm doing all right. That is one of the biggest hurdles. The inability to look at this shattered child and say, that is definitely not me. Look at me. I've got it all. I've got a, I mean, I'm not, I don't have it all together, but man, I got a lot of it together. I mean, I'm doing all right. I got my job. I got my family. We're, we're moving along, you know, and I've got friends and family and acquaintances. I'm really doing pretty good. I, there's no way I can see myself as this shattered son. And thoughts like that are the greatest hurdle in many cases, against an honest faith in who Jesus is and what He has done for you. We are incredibly religious people and so religious that your religion can get in the way of you truly coming to Christ. Your religion can build a wall between you and God. And you get so high up on this wall, so high up on yourself, so high up on your religious do-goodery that you cannot find the humility for repentance. That maybe I am this one in desperate need And I don't climb my way up to God and say, look what I've done. But I've realized myself as the shattered son in need of something from outside of myself to rescue me. There are people like this in the Bible. Think of Job's friends. You know, the book of Job is a tough book to read because you have all these religious people saying great things to Job, right? They're saying, Job, if you do this, I mean, it all sounds so good. They, they're very religious people. They think they know God. They've got this all figured out and they talk to Job and then you read the last chapter and you find out all along these people who were convinced they knew God and were righteous, they know Him at all. Their religion, their, their, their sureness that they were the ones that were good and everyone else was the one that had the problems. Job, look at that sufferer, Job, but let us help you, Job. We know what's up. We know you're the, Job is the shattered one in their opinion, and they're the ones that have got it right. And in the end, they are the ones that are proved to be wrong. They are blinded by an assumed goodness and self-sufficiency. They cannot conceive that God would think differently of them than they think of themselves. They cannot conceive of a world where God thinks of me differently than I think of me. I think I'm all right. Obviously, God would too. They cannot conceive of that. We believe that we pretty much have got it together. We believe we've got it together. That's why we don't see ourselves as this shattered sun. Maybe we're off in a few areas, but, but overall, uh, you know, um, we're really close to nailing it. We we're really close to having it all figured out, but that is not the view Scripture shows us. Jesus says in John 8, 34, that anyone who practices sin, anyone who practices sin, ever transgress, ever lie, ever think a thought you shouldn't think, ever have a a heart feeling of hatred and not love, ever at all, anyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. You may think you're out making free choices of sin, but Jesus said anyone who makes a practice of sin is a slave to sin. They are one who is in bondage. Think of the son thrown down on the ground, controlled, oppressed by this demon. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They are under the sway. They are caught up in their sinfulness. They are choosing it because they are a slave of sin. In our natural state, this is who we are. Slaves to sin. Paul echoes this in Romans 6, saying that we are slaves of sin in our natural condition. And in our natural state, we are buried beyond the point of being able to dig ourselves out. 
buried to the point of being unable to dig. That child could not dig himself out. Think of someone who is maybe in a trench and the walls collapse in on him, sin collapses in on him, and you say, come on, and you know, that happens. You can't get your arms out to dig yourself out. What do you need to have happen? Somebody better come along and dig you out, right? Or else you're in big trouble. This is the state of that shattered son, and this is the reality of our fallen condition apart from the outside help of God and of Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior. We are those who are buried, who a word of do this or do that, dig yourself out, does no good for you. Outside help must come in. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is just a killer on this issue. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our natural state, we are dead in our sins, not truly free, but followers of the course of the world. We are, in our natural state, the shattered son. We are the one who is oppressed and unable to help themselves. So, we are the ones also estranged from our father. Why does that father care? He wants his son back. This son in his shattered state is estranged from his father. See that picture. The, the son in his shattered state is estranged from his father. We as a broken humanity in our sinful state under dominion of sin, dead in our trespasses, we are estranged from our father. We are estranged from our father. What is the good news in this light? Well, Jesus can restore sons back to their fathers. Look at the verse 42 here. While he was coming in chapter 9 of Luke, while he was coming, the demon-possessed boy is coming. The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And end of it all, how does it end up? And gave him back to his father. Jesus can take shattered sons and bring them back to their father. Matthew, that word shattered, I told you to think about that. Remember that word shattered. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew quotes this um, quotes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 in regards to, the, regards to the work of Christ. And it says this, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Verse 20, a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That word bruised there, bruised reed, he will not break, that is the same Greek word where they get that shattered of that son, that shattered son. And the, the prophecy of Jesus is that a shattered son, a bruised reed, he will not break. The image is of a reed that is bruised, it has got a weak spot in it, and Jesus is not going to come and break it, but he is going to come 
and He is going to restore it. Here, Jesus is the promised one who will not break the reed that is bruised, but He will mend it. He will not snuff out the light, but He will bring life back to it. This is what Jesus does for shattered sons. And it is what He does for all who look to Him in faith. How is Jesus going to do this? How is He going to do this? How does He not break that which is bruised? How does He not snuff out that which is smoldering? This deliverer, this deliverer, Jesus is the deliverer, this deliverer will be delivered over for the deliverance of the desperate. Lots of D words there, I know. This deliverer, Jesus, will be delivered over for the deliverance of the desperate. This is what he warns the disciples, we read later, is going to happen. In 944, he says that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This what a roller coaster these guys are on. Mountaintop transfiguration. By the way, I'm going to be handed over. Comes down off the mountain, and they meet this demon possessed boy, and Jesus delivers the, the boy. Well, up, down, well, up, Jesus delivered this boy down again. By the way, I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. How can these realities, up, down, up, down, why this roller coaster all through the gospel here? Why isn't the ministry of Jesus just one big climb to the top? And they are intertwined there to prepare us for this reality, this great triumph that our Savior is going to accomplish. And how is he going to accomplish this great triumph? Through his greatest darkness. We have this Savior who's deliverer who will be delivered over and they will kill him. They will hang him on a cross and he will die. He will suffer. He will be bruised. He will be shattered. Why? The perfect son will be shattered so that those who are shattered can be perfected as sons. The perfect Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son will be shattered on the cross so that those who are shattered, which is all of us, could be perfected as sons. The beautiful Son, this beautiful one, the only Son of God, will be bruised, shattered. He'll be bruised so that the bruised ones, which is all of us, could be made beautiful. Jesus is going to come down Take the shattering that is upon all of us so that all of us who are the ones who are shattered could be brought back to the Father. Through any work of our own? No way. This is the work of grace. This is beyond ourselves. This is beyond ourselves uh, way outside of what we can do for ourselves. This is what grace is. It is an act done not for those who deserve it, but done for those who most definitely do not deserve it. And the act is done anyway for their behalf. The receivers of grace are those who are shattered and desperate like the shattered son. The deliverer, Jesus, is delivered over to the hands of men for the deliverance of the desperate. The one who is perfect, the perfect son, is shattered so that those who are shattered might be perfected as sons. Do you see this? Do you see your desperate condition? This is the grace of God that I look at myself and my fallen state and my fallen proclivities and inclinations shattered beyond the strength, beyond the fortitude to do anything and climb my way back up to God. And what does He do? 
the Son comes and takes the shattering upon himself so that people like me, people like you that are shattered and broken and bruised and messed up could be forgiven and reconciled and brought back to the Father. This is the good news of the gospel. Do you see your desperate condition? Do you see? Do you see? Oh, for eyes to see this, to see our desperate condition and to see the sufficiency of our Savior. We see it this morning as we come to communion. His body broken for us, not some work. I say this every Sunday, not some work we do, but rather the work has been done for us. We come. His body is broken for us. His blood is shed for us. And all we contribute is the sinful mess that required the Savior to come. That's what we bring is the mess. We bring the shattering. We bring the bruising. We bring the brokenness. And we come and we receive. The one, the Son of God comes, receives our bruising, receives our shattering, receives our punishment upon Himself that we would be set free. He gives His life that we might be rescued. Let's pray this morning that God would help us to see our own desperation, to see the sufficiency of this Savior, and that our hearts would be filled with the rejoicing, with rejoicing in a God who loves like this God loves. Let's pray. Father, help us to see. God, give us a spirit of repentance, of our self-sufficiency, God. I have by my own efforts, only driven myself further and farther away in my arrogance and self-sufficiency. God, give us eyes to see clearly the shattered, broken, sinful self we are apart from you. Give us eyes to see the grace poured out through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.